Well, if you're happy, we'll fix that. Don't worry. So we finished off yesterday. We looked at a case. There was somebody who had a spinal cord injury. They had a motor problem for affecting one leg, a sensory problem affecting that same leg, and a sensory problem affecting the opposite leg. And it was very, very complicated. And somebody asked a very, very good question. Well, is stuff crossing? Where does it cross? How are we going to know all this stuff? And what I'm going to do is, this takes a while. We have many, 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 many lectures of about things crossing this direction and that direction on, in the nervous system. So what I'm going to do is at least get you started with a little bit of study advice. So when you encounter a brand new set of tracks, then you can adapt to them a little bit. And let's look at a big important one here. The big method that you can follow, basically figure out where does a track start. In other words, what is the nucleus of origin? Where do we find that nucleus of origin for a particular tract? And then you can jump all the way to the end. In other words, what is the target nucleus for a given tract? And then you can worry about how you get between one nucleus and the next. And then, of course, what was the basic function or purpose of that particular tract? And then that'll allow you to predict what is the deficit that I'm going to see if I have an injury overlapping with that tract. So let's use an example. I don't expect you to try to memorize this stuff uh, right now. There's time for that later, but you can certainly start if you wish. What we're going to introduce you to is a model track. We're just going to pick a tract arbitrarily and apply those principles that we were talking about there. And let's use one that we encountered in our patient yesterday, and that is a tract involved in motor function. Very importantly, we're dealing with frontal lobe, and there's a particular little pile of tissue that we find in the frontal lobe. I'll show you that in a little while. And what we see are nuclei scattered along this little band of tissue, and these nuclei are interested in controlling motor output per particular parts of your body. So there's going to be a nucleus for controlling your arm. There's going to be a nucleus for controlling your leg, etc. And if we look at this rough coronal section here, this drawing of a coronal section, what we see is that if we're interested in controlling the bits inside your mouth and your face, we have nuclei scattered along the lateral aspect of the frontal lobe for doing exactly that. So if you damage that area, people are going to have trouble with the muscles of their mouth and their face. On the other hand, if we travel way medially in the frontal lobe, we'll see that the lower portions of the body are going to be influenced by those areas. Now, what part of the body was it our guy had, a, had weakness in yesterday? He was weak in his leg. So somehow or another, we interrupted this pathway here from the medial aspect of the frontal lobe all the way down to the spinal cord. And we interrupted it actually within the spinal cord. So this particular pathway that we interrupted, his start point was the cortex. And that gives rise to his name, Cortico. And then, of course, where did he end up? He ended up in the spinal cord. So this particular pathway, then, we're going to call him the corticospinal pathway. That was the relevant one for our purposes yesterday. So the start of that pathway is in the cortex. The end was down in the gray matter of the spinal cord, overlapping with a set of nuclei that are interested in talking to his leg muscles. So that's the end of the corticospinal pathway for our particular patient. And oh dear, check this out. This is the root. And we have lots and lots of little places, lots of little way stations along the way. But the very basics of this particular pathway is we have a start point up in the cortex. Then we have an axon and collection of axons forming a tract. So this is our corticospinal pathway. And then in answer to that question we had near the end of yesterday, does this pathway cross? Yes, it does. It crosses 
when we get to the caudal end of the medulla. So what that means is that this frontal lobe over here controls the opposite leg, and it does so by undergoing what we call a decussation. That is a crossing of a tract, a decussation. And then this neuron is able to interact with the nuclear region down in the spinal cord that gives rise to motor neurons that talk to the leg muscles. And what happened then in our patient yesterday? He had an injury, and the injury affected the spinal cord, and this pathway was nicked down here in the spinal cord. So in other words, the cortex was now disconnected from this, this nuclei or nucleus within the spinal cord, and therefore he went weak in the leg. That was the expectation. So that is kind of how I want you to approach these pathways. You're going to run into lots and lots and lots of different pathways. Where does it start? Where does it end? Now I'm going to worry about the root. And of course, what was the function? Why was it there? So what happens if it disappears or is otherwise damaged? So that's the little hint for you or guide that should help you a little bit as you understand some of these complicated pathways down the road. Now, next topic then, let's take a look at some imaging. And we're going to be looking largely at principles of imaging here. Let's start off with a question. And what we're doing here is we're just asking you to take a guess at what you think the source or category of this guy's disease is. So talk to your friend. Absolutely no problem if you don't get this one right. This is the difficult part, actually, is just categorizing the, categorizing the disease. And, of course, once you've categorized the disease, then you can maybe narrow down the exact cause. But this can sometimes be the most difficult part of it. Okay, let's find oh, a few more answers coming in here. Get your answers down quickly, please, and let's see what you think. And I, again, I probably expect to see quite a variety of opinions on this. And it looks like almost half of you think that it is kind of an immune or inflammatory response. We have, okay, not too many people think it's a genetic condition, but we have metabolic, vascular, and traumatic ideas as well. And... Let me just begin by saying it could be certainly more than one of these. So don't feel as though because you happen to pick one that's not so popular that you're necessarily wrong. Now let's try to work out this case a little bit. And first things we're going to look at, we're going to look at x-rays. And x-rays as a general rule, if you're trying to see the nervous system, x-rays are quite poor at doing that. Now the reason that they're quite poor at doing this as a general rule is that x-rays are basically absorbed or not absorbed by tissue. And what we find is the soft tissues are very, very poor at absorbing x-rays. And if they're very poor at absorbing x-rays, it's basically pretty hard to see them because we're dealing with a negative image. And so what we tend to see, if you look at a typical sort of x-ray of the skull, is you'll note here's a, a lateral view, a fairly typical kind of a view that we might see if we take a skull x-ray. Here is a frontal view. 
Now, tell me, uh, what is the condition, let's say, of this guy? How is his frontal lobe doing? I don't see anything in particular wrong. That's, that's largely because I don't actually see anything. There's nothing there. Basically, what's happened is the dense tissues are absorbing the x-rays, and you don't see the soft, squishy stuff inside. So basically, then, how do you may interpret something like this? Uh, there are times when you can actually make inferences about nervous damage based on an x-ray. Uh, one cir circumstance where you might see something like that is what happens if you notice that a particular part of the skull is not absorbing as many x-rays as you think it might otherwise do. Well, what that could indicate is that the skull is actually thinner in that spot, so maybe something is kind of eroding it. Maybe they've got a tumor development and it's chipping away at the skull so you don't absorb as many x-rays there, but it's very indirect as a general rule. That was the best we had for a long time, but it's very indirect if you're able to see anything at all. Now, let's take a look at some things that you can see. Does anybody notice anything wrong in any of these pictures? Put your keen powers of observation to work, if you will. Well, here's something suspicious. I wonder what it might be. It seems to be a nail, and it seems to be inside this guy's head. And whoops, here's another unfortunate guy. And check this one out down below. Okay. These are nail gun injuries. This one down below, you're probably wondering, well, that must have been a bad day at the office. Uh, this was actually a suicide attempt by nail gun. And as you can see, it didn't go very well. So nail guns, check it out, go nail gun brain on Google, and you'll see all kinds of fascinating pictures. These are quite interesting devices, and they do cause an awful lot of very interesting injuries here. What we're seeing, though, is the fact that we have this x-ray opaque structure there. Basically, what we're talking about here is we can see stuff, dense materials inside the nervous system, and that is a possible advantage that we have. So we have dense foreign matter that we can observe. That is definitely diagnostically useful. Uh, other th aspects of this, it's a kind of a cheap and available technique that you can use. It's everywhere. It's not a very expensive technology to use. Uh, disadvantages of this technique, obviously, you're exposed to ionizing radiation. But again, we have minimal capacity to illustrate or reveal the softer structures of the nervous system. Now, somebody came along and said, well, I can kind of help things out here a little bit. This is quite barbaric, actually. We don't do this anymore. You'll notice in this x-ray, you can actually make out the outline of the ventricular system. You can see the ventricle there. So how is that trick done? Well, this is a kind of a nasty trick they played. What they do is they remove the cerebral spinal fluid and they replace it with air. And in so doing, they're able to pick up a little bit of contrast between that empty or air-filled ventricular space and the tissue surrounding it. It's pretty crude, but it did give you enough of a contrast. You could actually visualize parts of the ventricular system. Now... The downside of it is that it was actually quite dangerous. It's a very invasive procedure, and people did wind up dying from this procedure, so it was risky. Now, we can advance things a little bit. You can actually, with x-rays, get a look at blood vessels. And I'll show you how we do that. What we're going to do is we're going to introduce a catheter into the vascular system, and we're going to administer through that catheter a dye. And the dye is going to be radio-opaque. 
So in other words, the dye itself is going to be capable of absorbing x-rays, and then that will allow you to take a picture of the, of the blood vessels. So in this case, usually what they're going to use is a compound that contains iodine, and that will have a tendency to absorb our x-rays and allow us then to see the blood vessels. Uh, risks along with this, there are certain risks. Again, it's an invasive procedure. You've got the possibility of a vascular spasm, and that can actually lead to infarctions. It's always possible that somebody could be allergic to the compound that is ministered also. Very good, however, at showing vascular malformations or obstructions or maybe narrowings of the blood vessels. So let's take a look at some of these. Here is a cerebral angiograph. And this is a picture. It's not a half bad study picture, actually, just for getting used to the blood vessels. I'll orient you a little bit. What we're looking at here is the filling of the carotid system with the dye. So here is our carotid. And we're traveling then down in through the area of the cavernous sinus. And then we emerge into the subarachnoid space. And some blood vessels that you're going to want to identify over time. I can clearly see running along the midline here. This is our anterior cerebral artery. And way out here on the side is our middle cerebral artery. So I can see both of those. A little bit unusual though. You don't always see this. You maybe see this about 10% of the time. We're also filling up our posterior cerebral artery. Normally, remember that that vessel is going to be receiving its blood from the vertebral arterial system, but around 10% of the time, it will actually fill in the opposite direction from the internal carotid system. Sometimes it's just the way a guy's built. In other cases, it could actually mean that you're dealing with a vascular problem or vascular insufficiency arising from the vertebral arterial system. So get a little bit familiar with the appearance of those blood vessels in any event. So that's a frontal view. This set of vessels is filled with that radio-opaque dye. Now here is a view from the lateral aspect. It's the same patient, so far as I can tell. So here we have the carotid. There is our passage through the cavernous sinus. And it looks as though we emerge into the subarachnoid space. Here's our anterior cerebral artery. And here's the middle cerebral artery. And then down below, we see that anomalously filled posterior cerebral artery. Okay, so get accustomed to those. Now here is a malformation in the vasculature that we can clearly see. Uh, this looks like it's a middle cerebral arterial problem. So here is that internal carotid again. This looks like the middle cerebral artery traveling posteriorly and laterally along the surface of the brain. So this will kind of be back maybe in the parietal lobe area. And we see this dense vascular bed here. We'd have to make an assessment as to whether this person is at risk of having that vascular bed rupture. This arteriovenous malformation potentially could rupture, so we may want to perform some therapy on that. Now, one of the problems that we face when we're dealing with this x-ray angiography, take a look at this picture on the left. And what do you notice about the picture on the left? Remember, we have bones and teeth and stuff that are also absorbing x-rays. So these structures can actually interfere a little bit with our interpretation of the picture we're taking. We can clearly see that we've got blood vessels here. So again, this is the carotid system. But we also may be interested in some subtle signals. But it's difficult for us to see those subtle signals because we're also competing with the bones or the teeth. So what we might do is a little kind of a funny trick. It's a little digital trick that we're going to play. And what we'll do is we'll take an x-ray of the guy just sitting there 
and then we'll administer the dye and take another picture. And hopefully he hasn't moved between the two pictures. Because then what we can do is basically digitally subtract one image from the other and basically everything that was the same in the first picture as compared to the second picture, it disappears. You subtract it away. So all you're left with then is what was different between picture number one and picture number two and the thing that was different was the dye in the blood vessel. So you see this reduction in the signal derived from the solid structures of the body. And we're pretty much left over. If you do it really well, you're left over with pretty much nothing but the blood vessels. Now, of course, it was a subtraction. So now what you'll notice is that the blood vessel shows up as black rather than white. So that's how you can identify the difference between the two. So here we have then the malformation, which we can actually see reasonably well in the first case also. But it's much clearer when once we've done our digital subtraction, there we have this little narrowing of the internal carotid system. And maybe that's contributing then to so an insufficiency of flow. Maybe the anterior cerebral artery in this patient is insufficient and he's got an infarction. And that's the source of it there. We're just kind of turning the tap off and we're getting a cerebral infarction at another point. So that's digital subtraction and geography. Now, further down. Let's go down into the spinal cord area. And what we could do, remember we've got cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid surrounding the, the spinal cord, and that's in the subarachnoid space. It's possible actually for us to take pictures of the subarachnoid space. And what would be a nice easy way to do that? An easy way to do that is just simply to administer the contrast agent again, but this time instead of putting it into a blood vessel, put it into the subarachnoid space. It's an easy procedure to do actually. Because remember, the lumbar puncture is a fairly easy, straightforward process. So we make a puncture, we administer the dye, and then we see where it goes. And here, although we can't really see what the problem is exactly, we notice that there may be a problem here. And the evidence that we have a problem is that the flow of the dye was obstructed. It didn't manage to move very far in this rostral direction. So what that could indicate, possibly this guy has a tumor that's compressing the subarachnoid space surrounding the spinal cord, and we've identified it with this particular technique. Although there are, again, much, much better techniques, you still may see some pictures like this from time to time, however. Okay, let's take a look at kind of a, an advanced version of X-ray. We're gonna look at CT scanning or computed tomography. And the device itself, there we have an example of one of the devices. What you'll see is you've got to have a source of x-rays and you've got to have a detector for x-rays. And what we're going to do is we're going to rotate these source and detectors around in a circle. So that's what this donut is for. We've got basically source of x-rays on one side, detector on the opposite side, and they rotate around. So we're now going to have this rotating image created and what it'll do is it allow you to take a picture of a very thin slice of the human body and the way this is designed then we've got a patient lying on the table and little bit by little bit you can move them through that tube and if you wanted to you could take pictures of the entire body in this particular way and the images that you're going to see are going to show up a little bit like this this is kind of how they present and even though it's only x-ray based, what you can do with your computer modeling here, your computer algorithms, is you can start to see some structure. So there's the brain. 
You can see the cerebral surface. You can actually even see some differentiation between gray matter and white matter. So this is a vast improvement in structural imaging. Okay. Other things that you can look at here, you could uh, demonstrate fractures of the skull. It's also a very nice, quick way of demonstrating whether somebody's bleeding in the nervous system as well, or bleeding anywhere, in, any internal bleeding. But it's a very nice, quick way of, let's say somebody's collapsed and you're, you don't want to begin your therapy unless you're, you're sure that they're not bleeding inside. So what you do then is you make a quick CT and you'll be able to detect the blood as well. I'll show you some pictures of that. Okay, so here are some CTs. Things to note about CTs, uh, the skull can kind of interfere a little bit with your, the uh, quality of your images. So here's CTs, and you'll notice that we're down very, very close to the basal skull here. So the structures that are resting against the basal skull, they're a little bit hard to visualize because we do have that interference and in signal from the skull itself. So what orientation are these images in? Are they coronal, horizontal, or sagittal? These look horizontal to me. Look, there's, there are the eyeballs there. There's the nose. So these are horizontal sections. Com using the computer, you can twist them around if you wish, but sort of the default with a CT is for the horizontal section. Now, here, we're up off the base of the skull. Take a look at these pictures here, and you can actually see quite a lot of structure. So here we see differentiation of gray matter and white matter, and you can actually also see quite nicely the ventricular system. You get a reasonably good quality image in the CT. Take a look at blood. Anyone notice anything weird here? Perhaps indicated by the giant red arrow. Now, this situation, we've got a bleed. This is an epidural hemorrhage that we're dealing with here. And you can tell it's an epidural hemorrhage. Take a look, maybe down here. Maybe this is one of these two are the best examples. The two on the lower right you'll notice that we're kind of bulging on both sides. That's called a biconvexity, and that usually indicates that you're dealing with an epidural hemorrhage, probably related to a skull fracture. So this is quite a dangerous hemorrhage, and that's how you might recognize it on your CT. Here is another hemorrhage. This one's a subarachnoid hemorrhage, also very severe. And you'll notice that the blood here is showing up anywhere that the subarachnoid space is present. So here is, looks like a little bit of pons down there, and there's subarachnoid space surrounding it, and blood is following the subarachnoid space. Here's a subdural hemorrhage. So probably also related to trauma. And what's happened is this person has smacked their head, and you'll notice that the difference in shape here, this subdural hemorrhage is compared to our epidural hemorrhage. In this case, we don't have that biconvexity. What you've got is more of a crescent shape, or kind of a moon shape here. And that's how you might tell the difference then between a subdural and an epidural hemorrhage. The subdurals, obviously, they can also be very severe as well, but as a rule, the epidurals are the bigger worry in the short term. Okay, complicated picture. There's evidence of two types of hemorrhage there. Talk it over with your friend and see if you can agree or disagree concerning what it is you see here.
And don't even be surprised. If we really, really, really closely examine, you might even see evidence of more types of hemorrhages than that. But the, I'll, I'll tell you the two that I think are obvious anyway. I'm hearing some very interesting discussions. Okay, put your answer down very quickly, please. And let's have a quick analysis here. I think most folks were pretty sure about what this one was over here. Let's find out what you thought. There we go. That's better. Okay, this is actually about how I expected things were going to work out here. I think vast majority here were convinced that this one was epidural in nature because we had that biconvexity. That one's apparent. Where we're going to argue, and this is quite reasonable to argue, in fact, is over this area here. And this, this finding, these multiple hemorrhages here, this is almost certainly a traumatic event. When somebody smacks their head, okay, it's an epidural hemorrhage, so he probably took a smack. Which side of the brain is that, left or right? That is the left side of the brain, so he took a whack on the left side of the head. Skull fracture occurred, producing an epidural hemorrhage, but the brain is rattling around inside. Pretty much no matter which way you hit it, the brain rattles around inside. So don't be at all surprised if over here you have the injury, that's the direct one, and you also on the other side or at other sites have additional injuries. And that's what's going on in our patient here. What I'm going to look at here, you'll notice, and it's particularly obvious here, it looks like the blood is following the little grooves along the surface and that's subarachnoid space. So I think that that is a subarachnoid and an epidural. But if we look very closely, you might also see evidence of subdural as well. So I wouldn't rule that out. That's just what I think glancing at this picture. Okay, but if you chose otherwise, no problem just yet. Okay, let's take a look at magnetic resonance. So basically what we're going to worry about from the clinical perspective is we're going to get our signal, we're going to derive our signal from protons of hydrogen and what we're going to do is we're going to take the giant magnet and we're going to align your protons your hydrogen protons are going to align with the magnetic field and then what we're going to do is temporarily disrupt that alignment with radio waves so we're going to pound you with radio waves and disalign our protons then they will try to realign and as they do so we can detect a little electrical signal and on the basis of that electrical signal we can make pictures of your nervous system. So That's how we're going to do this to start. Now clinically speaking there are two basic signals that we worry about. There's a T1 and a T2 and the reason we tend to worry about these is they are derived preferentially from different types of tissue. So we, if we have for example uh, a T1 signal which is going to be emitted strongly from the high lipid bearing tissues what that picture will tend to show us is the structure it's very good at showing us the details of the structure of the brain so if somebody has let's say uh, they've got an infarction and the structure has changed we can demonstrate that nicely with our T1 signals on the other hand if you have inflammatory processes what that means is we're gonna have a lot of water in the area and T2 signals 
are strongly emitted from the watery tissues. So basically, if someone has an inflammatory reaction, maybe they've got, uh, how about an abscess or an autoimmune disease, then we can see that more vividly with our T2 signal MRI. Now let's take a look at the T1s and the T2s. And again, there are many, many variants on MR, but these are the basic ones. Let's take a look at the T1s to start. And what you should notice is to begin, we see very, very good structure. A lot of detail. The stronger the magnet is, obviously, the better the picture is going to be. Uh, we can see, let's take a look at this one down here in the middle. You can even make out there's our lateral ventricle and there's our hippocampus. You can see very, very minute details depending on how strong the magnet happens to be. And there are some very powerful ones that are in use. The clinical ones, they tend to be kind of on the weaker side of things because that just is cheaper to operate. But in some cases, the, with the very, very powerful magnets, you can see a lot of detail. Now, what we'll also notice in this picture, we've got good structure. The T1 MR often has black cerebrospinal fluid. And that makes total sense because remember, the T1 signal is strong when you're looking at lipids. If you're dealing with water, the T1 signal is weak. So in this case, then the cerebrospinal fluid is going to show up as black. So always glance at this thing and ask yourself, do I have white cerebrospinal fluid or black cerebrospinal fluid? And when you see the black cerebrospinal fluid, that tends to indicate that you're dealing with a T1-weighted magnetic resonance image. Also in this patient, you'll notice something up here. It looks like we've got infarction. And almost certainly what this relates to is insufficiently of blood passing through the internal carotid system. So where we see the damage is right where we have the junction of the anterior cerebral artery from the medial surface and the middle cerebral artery from the lateral surface. So where those two sources of blood are trying to get together, that's where we have this big infarction, but we can clearly see it on this nice T1-weighted image. Okay, question for you. Make sure you see both of the tumors. So which one has the bigger chance of killing this guy? Okay, what is your opinion on this? And it looks like about 8 out of 10 of you think that it is this one. Just quickly shout out, why do you think it's P instead of Q? Brainstem is right nearby. So this looks like a cerebellar tumor to me, but right nearby we're going to find the medulla and the pons. That's where vital function is going to be seated. So if we compress those, this person is likely to die. And Mr. Smiley agrees. Okay, 
T2 weighted. What you'll notice start is that we have very bright areas here where there's lots of water. So look at the eyeballs, they're vivid, and it looks like the ventricles are white. The subarachnoid space is also white. So that points at a T2 weighted image here. But you'll notice that we don't have quite as good a resolution as far as structure goes, and it's just generally a little bit harder to make out the exact nature of the anatomy here, but we can easily follow our subarachnoid space and the ventricular system. Because of that property, though, we can see evidence of immune reaction. So we're going to be looking for edema and edema-related neuropathology. So let's take a look at different types of disease processes here and see how they are illuminated with the T2-weighted MRI. So here we have a case of multiple sclerosis. In the multiple sclerosis, we have an autoimmune attack and it's going after some cells that we talked about the other day. Remember we talked a little bit about oligodendrocytes. Those are insulating cells that we're going to find wrapped around the axons forming tracts. And here we see evidence of one of these attacks going on. So we have an inflammatory reaction in the area of demyelination or that attack on that set of oligodendrocytes. Here is a person with an HIV-related encephalopathy. So here we're seeing the disease process attack the brain. And then here is someone who has an infection, very vigorous infection going on there. And again, a very, very enhanced immune reaction is going to take place. Now I'm going to direct your, your attention back to this case of multiple sclerosis. Again, the T2-weighted MRI is going to nicely reveal the plaque. There are times when they get a little bit difficult to see, though. Because remember, these plaques are going to show up as white on your image because of the in immune involvement and the in inflammation. So if we find that the plaque is formed right around the vicinity of a passageway for the subarachnoid space, like in a ventricle, it can actually be a bit difficult to see. So there is a variation on the imaging, and what we'll do is it's called a flare. And the flare image, what it's going to do is it's basically going to reduce the signal from the ventricular system so you can more easily see the inflammatory reactions around the cerebrospinal fluid. But uh, you'll have to get a little bit uh, more sophisticated detail on that in order to appreciate that. But nonetheless, what we're basically getting at here is in some instances you can show inflammatory reactions and it can look pretty much like a T2, or excuse me, a T1 weighted image, but it's actually a flare image. Okay, let's look at a little bit of a comparison between T2 and T1 weighted images. And what we're going to try to find is a tumor. Now take a look at our T1 weighted image over here and we go, oh my goodness, there must be a tumor there because there's a word and a line. So I'll bet you there's a tumor there. And you're correct. But what we're going to find is if you didn't have the word and the line there, it might be a bit difficult for you to appreciate that there is a tumor exactly there. So you can add in a contrast agent that'll help the T1 weighted image along. You're going to administer an element called gadolinium and that's going to emit a strong T1 signal. So here we have a T1 signal arising from a particular location. So what lobe are we dealing with back here? Occipital. So this guy's probably got visual problems. He's got a tumor back in the occipital lobe. But we've administered the contrast agent. 
And it's found its way through the blood-brain barrier because in the area of tumor, it's not unusual to see weakenings of the blood-brain barrier and in the area vicinity of inflammatory reactions. Weakenings of the blood-brain barrier, the contrast agent gets in there, and then we get a very strong T1-weighted signal showing us the location of the tumor. If you look at T2-weighted image, what the, t what the T2-weighted image is showing you is the inflammatory response to the tumor but it's still not really showing you the tumor itself. So probably for the tumor detection, then we are largely dependent on our T1-weighted image using a contrast agent. But then uh, if this guy has quite a lot of uh, disability related to the presence of this tumor, what's a lot of that disability related to? Is it the tumor itself or is it this immune reaction going on? So probably what would happen is if you administered anti-inflammatory agents, you'd likely see a fairly brisk recovery of some function, but you'd still nonetheless be left with the tumor. Okay, advantages and disadvantages of the technique here. Advantages, we get very nice structural images, sensitive to inflammatory responses, but we're also not dealing with ionizing radiation and... They're pretty common devices. They're, you're going to find these things scattered around and they're reasonably accessible. It is a more expensive prospect than computed tomography, but you also have to be careful about what's inside the human body when you move them into a room with a big powerful magnet. Uh, if somebody, for example, maybe they were a metal worker as a young person and there's a fragment of metal in the body, what's going to happen? Let, here's, remember our guy with the nail in the brain? If that was a steel nail and he were to walk into this room, What's going to happen to the nail? I'm going to give you an example. There were some guys who decided that they were going to go clean up in the magnetic resonance image room. And they decided to take with them a vacuum cleaner. And the vacuum cleaner jumped off the floor and flew across the room and slammed against the magnet. So if you've got a nail inside your brain, it's going to move around inside there and it's going to tear your brain apart. So what I would suggest is if you are the least bit uncertain as to what's inside the human body, take a good history and an x-ray would be helpful as well. Okay, so be very cautious about that. Uh, pacemaking devices were a big problem at one time, but they have created devices that can do the job but are not sensitive to the magnetic field that's in that particular room. Okay, so angiography showing the blood vessels using our magnets and we can do that again with our contrast agent so we administer the contrast agent into the vascular system and here's a nice picture we're actually showing the arterial and venous systems related to the brain here very very nice vivid images here you can see the big veins running along the back so this is over top of our cerebellum here very very nice pictures so that's just M magnetic resonance angiography now, the next thing we'll look at, let's take a look at our radionuclear techniques. We'll look at two of these, positron emission tomography first. And what we're going to look at, generally speaking, there's all kinds of different techniques that we can use here. Commonly, what we're going to look at is a map of metabolism. So let's suppose that we administer a radioactive analog of glucose. If you have a metabolically active area in the nervous system or really anywhere in the body, what can happen then is that area says, oh, look, here's some glucose, which just happens to be radioactive, and it takes the stuff up. 
and then based on the decay of that radioactive isotope, then we can make a nice pretty picture. So let's take a look at an example of that. Here is a very crude positron emission tomograph. Here's a guy who's just lying here minding his own business. So that's a map of the metabolism of his brain. Then we turn the lights on and we see an alteration in metabolic activity. And then we show him a pretty picture and we see even more metabolic activity. So based on this picture, we can infer that presentation of visual stimuli is causing changes in metabolic activity back here in the occipital lobes. But again, it's not showing you structure, it's just showing you areas of metabolism. Now, single photon emission computerized tomography, it's kind of a, a, a dampened down version of PET. What we're going to do is we're going to have, a, it's, it's got an advantage in that it's generally speaking much cheaper to do and the reason for that is that the isotopes can be much longer half-life that we use in SPECT versus PET. Uh, some of the original isotopes that we used in positron emission tomography, they had half-lives just on the order of minutes. Now we have some better ones now, some longer half-life isotopes that we can use, and that cuts down on cost. And, and the, the savings in cost was uh, interesting because you're dealing with such short half-life isotopes what that meant is you basically had to make them yourself on site in order to use them. And guess what you need if you want to make your own isotopes? You need a cyclotron and a team of physicists. And that's expensive. So if instead of that, what we want to do is just kind of like go online, go to eBay and look up long half-life radioisotopes and you order a jar. I don't know what it comes in. You order a jar of this stuff and it allows you to keep it on the shelf. Now, with respect to PET, we do have some longer half-life isotopes. Now that cuts down a lot on cost, but at one time, cost for a PET scanner was astronomical. Now, if we're looking at single photon emission computerized tomography, instead of looking at metabolism, what we're gonna look at is blood flow. We're gonna look at perfusion of tissue. So take a look at this picture here. Now, can anyone tell me what the heck is going on in this picture? You might say, oh, look, the guy's got a black thing back here. And you'd be correct. What's gone on here? This guy apparently has a vascular malformation and a reduction of flow of blood through that area. So the perfusion is reduced. How you would conclude that on the basis of this picture, I have no idea. Guess how you do it? You use a different technique. So let me just show you quickly there. So that corresponds to this, which the digital subtraction angiograph is very, very nicely showing us. Okay, so in, that's cerebral blood flow. So let's look then at basically how we're making these pictures. What's happening is we're depending on nuclear decay. So we're dependent and, uh, and, and basically annihilation of structures, in, of uh, subatomic structures. In the case of SPECT, we're gonna administer, it's commonly on, uh, an isotope of iodine that we're gonna use, or we can use a synthetic element called technetium. 
and then we're looking for evidence of radiation. We use a little gamma camera because we're looking at gamma waves and we're making a picture on that basis. But you saw the quality of the picture. It's just, it's kind of this little fantasy thing. And uh, just a little word of warning, uh, sometimes medical charlatans use these imaging techniques. Uh, they kind of trick people into thinking that, let's say you're dealing with a, a very sick child, maybe they have a developmental disorder. You'd be amazed using a little bit of Photoshop trickery how you can show amazing improvement based on the therapy of the day. So they'll charge quite a lot of money. They'll, oh, look, we did a PET scan. Look at the improvement here. And all they've done is just kind of monkeyed around with the dials a little bit to change the colors of the picture. And people get tricked by that. You've got to be extremely careful when you're dealing with these particular techniques. Okay. Now, with respect, again, to our, our PET scanning here, the trick that we're going to use is short half-life radioisotope. And what we're looking for here is we are looking for the migration of a positron. And usually it's going to migrate away from the atom. And after a while, it finds an electron to collide with. And when it collides, then one gamma ray goes this way, one gamma ray goes this way, and you have detectors surrounding it. It says something happened here and something happened here. So somewhere along this line, that's the point of that elevated metabolism. So those are just some of the tricks that are going to be played in order to produce these images. Uh, particularly with respect to PET scanning, I think the, they've actually, because they've developed some of these shorter, uh, this, excuse me, these longer half-life isotopes, it's a much more useful technique than it used to be, and it's much more accessible and less expensive. It can be used in many instances to demonstrate uh, tumor developments. Because you can imagine tumors might have high metabolic demand, high metabolic activity, and therefore, in some cases, if you are administering a therapy, you might say, oh, it looks like the tumor is shrinking a little bit. That might give you a little bit of an idea. So these techniques are a bit more useful than they used to be, and they're more widespread. Okay, so that's those basic techniques. Now, I think in the next session, I think Dr. Haig is coming in for a bit, and then I'm coming back in at 10 o'clock, and then we have, at 11, do we have IMCQ? Is that correct? Okay, so I will see you again at 10 and 11. I'll be around for a couple of minutes if you want to come down and have a question about anything. So I'll see you then.